how was your child interacting and holding with the food? Could they tolerate looking at the food? Where are they at with like the, I don't want the food? Is it, I don't want the food because I'm being like, you know, a two-year-old and I'm just saying no, no, no to everything. Or is it like, I physically can't touch the food with my fingers and pick it up off my plate, and bring it over to put it into the empty bowl. So it's like looking at those little cues of your child, right? Are they mm -hmm. able to touch it, right? Because if you can't touch the food, you'll never be able to put it in your mouth. So it's looking at these like tiny little cues to see where they're at. Hi, and welcome to the Early Education Matters podcast with Kara Speech, where we upgrade our knowledge on early speech, language, and child development. My name is Kara Tambolini Danielson, and I am a speech language pathologist specializing in early intervention. I have four children's books on Amazon geared toward young talkers, and I also have a course for parents of young children who aren't yet talking called Helping Your Child Communicate. Visit me on Instagram at Kara Speech. I am so excited to bring you interesting discussions with experts on early childhood topics covering ages zero to four so we can better support our young clients and children. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Taskin, speech-language pathologist. I'm so excited to have her on. She has a great Instagram account, and I've been following her for quite some time and learning a lot about a variety of speech therapy tips and tricks. Today, we will be talking about feeding therapy and picky eating. I'm so excited to learn more from her. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about something that we are very passionate about in our practice. Awesome. Well, will you just introduce yourself and tell us about um, where you are and where you work and yeah. uh, just a little bit about you? So my name is Rebecca Taskin. Um, I live in New York City. I work with, let's say, the zero to teenage population for feeding, feeding disorders, picky eating. Um, we do a lot of other, you know, speech related things too in our clinic, but we get 50% of our clients are definitely feeding clients at this point. Um, I initially started my career working in a school for kids with brain injury where I did more medically compromised feeding. Um, we also, you know, teeter tattered a little bit with tube bleeding at the time, but over time my practices build, we do tube bleedings. We do little ones. I'm currently working on my lactation consultant license as well. So, um, you know, we have kids with ARFID, it's all sorts of feeding and feeding disorders and feeding therapy. So it's, it's really great. Um, and we're, you know, we have a small practice in Manhattan. There's eight of us as, you know, some of us do feeding, some don't, but we're all constantly learning from each other and pulling from all the different tools that we have. Oh, great. That is awesome. And um, so can you tell us about extreme picky eating? What is extreme picky eating? So, Extreme picky eating starts way before you're seeing the behavior manifest through food. Um, it's usually seen in kids that are a little bit more rigid and they have a harder time with flexibility and, you know, seeing things differently, tasting things differently. Um, and their approach to food kind of comes out um, through a very rigid channel. I see it at a young age. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves are the divided plates. I think everyone should throw out every divided plate. Oh um, they encourage... Um, rigidity. I have 12 year olds who won't let their food touch, you know, because of these divided plates that they've had since infancy. Um, so a lot of these picky eating signs, you know, we see early on um, kids that tend to have a lot of like GI issues, gastro 
um, challenges from infancy. We see them develop really picky eaters, um, especially if it's not treated, especially if they have an allergy that may have been, um, you know, not caught in, in time and you know, they become very rigid and picky around food. It's also very highly associated with kids that have different types of pervasive developmental disorders. So autism, for example, we see a lot of children in our practice with, um, who are picky eaters with, um, who also are diagnosed with autism. Um, but again, um, the picky eating really manifests from a very young age and it becomes a very channeled eating that gets smaller and smaller over time. So when it, many of our kids are eating one brand of Trader Joe's mango yogurt on a pink, on an orange spoon that is the exact same orange spoon that they ate yesterday with. And that is all they're eating. Mm -hmm. So we get into these varied pigeonholes and the, you know, a lot of their physicians are saying, okay, are they getting their calories? Are they okay? And then at the point where the parents are like, no, that they're not okay anymore. It's too late. So the oh. parents are red flagging it, but they, I don't feel like they have the support if they're not heard um, for treatment. And so that's why we're really big advocates of starting early mm. um, with therapy for picky eating. So talking about starting early. So I know you mentioned a bit about the early signs of picky eating. Um, what, uh, what should parents and clinicians kind of be aware of and how should um, that those early signs be addressed? Um, so you know, basic 101 from speech therapy, an eval is looking at the oral motor skills of the child. So if you notice the child is not taking in various textures that are age appropriate, and they may have missed some of the developmental norms with like accepting different textures, um, that would be a red flag for you in your report writing. If you're noticing there's no lateralization of the bolus in the mouth, that could be a red flag for you in your, you know, report writing. Understanding and really diving into what colors the child eat. If there is a specific temperature the child only eats their food at, there's a specific place they only eat their food at. You know, if they have to have a TV show on to distract them while they're eating. So these are all things that we're going to pull for during our initial report and re developing report with the client that um, will kind of help contribute to like our clinical understanding of what's going on with the child overall. Because a lot of these things, when we do our intake calls, we ask three main questions. How's their sleep? How's their feeding? And how's their speech? Because those three things are all tied together. So if there is definitely challenges in speech, and then we're also seeing challenges in feeding, we have to really red flag that and go deep into like what's going on with the child. And how does sleep uh, play into that? A lot of kids who are not getting enough nutrition also correlate with poor sleep. So they're missing nap times, they're hungry, they're waking up, they're irritable, they don't have good bowel movements, they're not getting enough water, they're dehydrated. So it kind of ties into all of the, um, you know, the developmental growth of the child and the, the maturation of the brain. Mm -hmm. We see kids here who may have only been eating chips for the last three months, starting to eat new foods, new calories. And all of a sudden you see the, the cognitive growth growing. As yeah. well they're getting enough nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then what, what if a child is starting to tend to like not want foods to touch or mm -hmm. they're only eating certain colors and mm -hmm. it's just mild things that the parent kind of has to go a little bit more out of their way to accommodate. Um, how would you, what advice would you give to a parent whose child maybe is only eating, like tending towards one color or not having foods touch or things like that? So there's different methods, right? That we read about on the internet. So there's like a couple of philosophies. So the um, Ellen Satter approach is you provide the food to the child, the child will decide how much they eat. 
If a child is an extreme picky eater or has ARFID or a diagnosed eating, eating disorder, they will not eat the food that you put in front of their face. Okay. And so they will get to the point of starvation. So, you know, at that point, I would say if you're starting to get really concerned about it, parents have amazing intuition, reach out to a feeding therapist. If your child is um, kind of getting to the point where, you know, they're not letting their food touch and they're like being more rigid around food, make sure you're eating with them at mealtime. Make sure you're modeling with them how we eat. Like we really co-regulate our child's emotions and like feeding at a young age. So, you know, having a lot of that understanding and the empathy and using words like you're brave, you know, you're strong, you know, this is, this is a vegetable, this is a fruit. We don't have to say, do you like it over and over again? Because you're just going to frame their mind of like, I don't like it. So I'm not going to eat it. So just kind of thinking about being more conscious about how we're describing the food to the child instead of um, kind of pushing our anxiety about getting them to eat Mm -hmm. on them will definitely help lessen a little bit of that load on you. But Mm -hmm. I think, again, it's so case by case and I can't give like a blanket of advice, but I think that if you do feel and intuitively that there's something wrong, definitely Mm -hmm. reach out for help. And like you said before, like you don't recommend the um, divided plates. Um, What are some other things to just kind of get in the habit of doing so that your child is kind of tolerates more food diversity or things touching or textures or what are what what things would you recommend there to kind of prevent a possible feeding issue? Yeah. So in the American, you know, in the American culture, like what I think of like when I was four years old, how you feed a baby goes with the spoon and like open its mouth, blah, 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 right? So like there is something to be said about that, right? Because some kids do struggle with getting food into their mouth, right? And the fact that like a child at four thinks that's how you feed a ch- another child makes it kind of like frames our mind that kids do have trouble eating, right? So some of the strategies I would recommend are sitting with your child at the table. So, you know, all these high chairs that are so amazing and so great, make sure they actually fit at the table. If you don't want your child's high chair away from the table and the table like far away from the child, a lot of kids also will throw food on the floor. If you're sitting next to the child and you're both eating and you both have the same food on your plate, if they don't want the food, they can put it on your plate. You could eat it. You're modeling for them back and forth what it's like to eat. You're making them feel safe. You're making them feel comfortable with the food, right? If your child is far away eating by themselves, throwing food at the dog, throwing food you know, over the board, whatever we call it, then it's going to be a little bit harder to manage, let's say, the behaviors of eating versus if you're sitting with them next to them, it's part of a family joint, you know, experience. It's going to feel a lot different for them. It's they're going to feel a lot less pressure to eat. Mm-hmm. I like what you say about kind of modeling a cal- a calmer energy, especially if you're. What should you do if a child refuses a food? So you're giving them broccoli or Brussels sprouts, mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. like, "No, I don't want it." What, what would you do? Like, what would you say or? Yeah, I've been to so many classes. I really think I've been to every feeding class that like is available for youth at this point. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different strategies and everything works. Everyone has great ideas. Like Melody Potok loves the, the side bowl. So you put the food in the bowl that you don't want. So you have a bowl next to your plate, you can put the food in. So for our kids, I'd rather them just either leave it on their plate and tolerate it or put it on my plate so I could try it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but you have to kind of see how the reaction is with food. And I think that, um, one, the SOS approach, uh, Dr. Toomey has a really great approach is how is your child interacting and holding with the food? Can they tolerate looking at the food? Like, where are they at with like the, I don't want the food. Is it, I don't want the food because I am being like 
you know, a two-year-old and I'm just saying no, no, no to everything? Or is it like I physically can't touch the food with my fingers and pick it up off my plate, bring it over to put it into the empty bowl? So it's like looking at the little cues of your child, right? Are they mm-hmm. able to touch it, right? Because if you can't touch the food, you'll never be able to put it in your mouth. So it's looking at these like tiny little cues to see where they're at. Um, Marcia Dunklein has a great course. She's an occupational therapist. She talks about responsive feeding. So if the child is moving towards the food or away from the food, and that kind of will help you dictate like, are they interested or are they not interested, right? So mm-hmm. if the kid has a visceral reaction, they're throwing, they can't even look at it. They can't even touch it. I would not push that kid with that food. But if the kid has started to explore, they're starting to mush it, they're starting to play with it. They're able to touch it, put it on your plate then maybe that's a food you want to build into their diet gradually over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what about, say a child does have very, they're, they're kind of having trouble getting adequate nutrition and the doctors are concerned and you have them in your clinic. What are some things that you do to address that? What are some therapy techniques or yes, you address? It depends on the age of the child. So for children under four, I would say we have a different protocol than children above four. Um, So for children under four who are not getting caloric needs, who are about to go on a G2 or an NG2 to get calories, we have more of a sensory motor approach to feeding. So we're making sure that sensory-wise, we're only providing them with the foods that they're able to tolerate. Um, And motor-wise, we're able to. So for example, if a kid only at that stage is eating, let's say, yogurt, vanilla yogurt, I would never give that kid chicken, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that kid threatening to want you do, I might need to increase their calories by working nutritionist to then maybe pump them up like with a smoothie, right? That has a ton of calories in it, and then work on a texture and a color that makes sense for them. I would think about it more from a perspective of a, a sensory approach um, to make sure that we're, you know, not going off the deep end with um, providing them things that are, you know, going to fuel the anxiety of eating during feeding therapy. And um, is it more of like a systematically, gradually increasing tolerance to certain foods and textures? And yeah, it definitely is. And these are extreme picky eaters we're talking about. We're not talking about kids that like refuse broccoli, right? So these kids are like extreme picky eaters. Um, so we're doing a gradual sensory motor approach over time. And it, you know, sometimes parents want instant results, and sometimes kids give instant results. You know, and I, we can't really say that until we've done a couple sessions with the child to see how they react to therapy. And that's how I can kind of dictate and like explain to them how long maybe I can give them some sort of time range. But um, it's usually very slow for these kids because it's, they're coming in at four years old. They've already spent their one, 100% of their life eating a certain way. And I'm about to break that and help them like kind of move forward from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can imagine it would take a lot of time and a lot of consistency and um having parents be trained in what to do at home as well. Totally. And we do that actually um, at the end of the session, the last 10 minutes, we have the caregiver come in and we just swap. And so we just give them cues on what we're doing if they're not there the whole session. And then back to if you just have a kid who's doesn't have extreme picky eating, but they are refusing broccoli, but they're having it on their plate. Would you offer it it again, like the next day or maybe in the next week, or do you kind of have a way to kind of how often to offer foods that have been refused? Yeah. I think that it also, that also ties into a little bit of your parenting style. So I don't want to like comment on anyone's parenting style, but some people are a little bit more relaxed about it. You know, I don't care if my needs broccoli, right. And some mm-hmm. kids, and some people may be really hyper-focused on this broccoli. 
is that really important for the child? I don't know, right? It's mm-hmm. normal for like a kid to refuse a food, fruit or a vegetable for a certain period of time. Maybe they need more comfortability with it. Maybe you guys need to, as a family needs to be eating them more. Maybe they need more models around them. Maybe they just really don't like the texture, you know, or you could work into like a broccoli tater tot or like mix it up. It doesn't need to be like presented in the same format every time. But mm-hmm. the expectations are that if the child becomes picky with broccoli, then becomes picky with the lettuce, then becomes picky with the avocado, then becomes picky with the XYZ vegetable, then we're developing a real issue, right? But if they're just like picky with a few vegetables, I'm not really that concerned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that. And even that's what I do with my daughter. She's seven. And sometimes she just goes through phases of not wanting, like she loved blueberries and now she doesn't mm-hmm. want them. And I try oh, yeah. to stay relaxed about it and mm-hmm. serve it. But she, I did get into the habit of offering her food like separated. <laughs> yeah. So I know that- it's not your fault. It's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but she still will have dinner and she'll still want uh, you know, if we're, we're having like a rice bowl with veggies and and meat together, she'll want it. I'll make it for her all separate. But maybe I should start gradually giving her it together. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's totally up to you. And like one thing I would just say about that is just make sure whatever food you're going to serve is on the table already. Because if you are like, she's like, no, I don't want the blueberries. So you go back to the fridge and get raspberries. And she's, I don't want raspberries. It's just going to become no, 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 no. And that's like going to help kind of encourage the eating as well, right? So whatever you're going to offer her, make sure it's on the table from the beginning. Okay. That way it's like, we're not going to go back up and forth, back and forth to the kitchen because you're going to say no every time. That right? makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, getting a bowl of cereal at the end because nothing was eaten. That's exactly not, not the way. So what do you, what do you do if a child, you know, they don't have extreme picky eating, but they are not interested in anything at the dinner table? It depends on what's going on internally with the child, honestly. If yeah. you think the child needs a break from the table, can come back, give them a break and come back. But like, again, it's so dependent on what's going on emotionally with the child and sensory at the time. I, I really you know? like, Rebecca, how like a lot of what you say is taking into account like how the child's feeling, what's going on with the child, like looking at the whole picture. Um, and then speaking of like the whole picture, and I know you said to kind of look at sleeping and oral motor things, but why do some kids develop extreme picky eating and then some don't? So most kids that we see with extreme picky eating are, it's a combination of the no, no, no approach, which I was telling you about, um, or like the rigidity. Um, there's also a lot of like underlying medical conditions. So what you were telling me about their blueberries with your daughter. When I was young, I refused pizza. And everyone was like, how could she not eat pizza? How could she not eat pizza? I had bad acid reflux. But like mm-hmm. as a six-year-old, I couldn't tell you that. Mm-hmm. I just could tell you I don't like pizza. No one said to me, does it make your stomach hurt? You know, like, and if someone had said to me, maybe I would have connected. I'm not even 100% sure, mm-hmm. right? So there are some medical underlying conditions that result in picky eating as well. So that's why I said like allergy tests are extremely important, especially if you see, start seeing kids get starting getting into like the, you know, specific food groups of eating. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they're starting to only, you know, drop off all the, you know, vegetables, drop off all the carbs, drop off all the dairy. And you're like, what's going on here? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they're starting to realize that like they can say no to things that hurt their stomach. Mm-hmm. Right. Or something, you know what I mean? So. I'm, and I'm also wondering if um, babies who have 
acid reflux because I know that's really common. And my daughter was actually diagnosed with it when she was a baby. I'm not sure if she actually had it or not, but she was really colicky. Um, I'm wondering if there's a correlation or if you've seen in your practice kids who as babies have acid reflux and then as toddlers are picky eaters. A hundred percent. Every kid I've seen that as at that age comes in, I've, I've, it's like kind of like, it's kind of like something within our practice. We know that if kid had a tongue tie release when they're born, if they had acid reflux when they're born, we're going to see that again when there's the transition between purees and solids. Mm. Or, you know, at some point when their diet changes and they, the motor skills change, we will see these children again. And especially because the parents are more tuned in now because they've already had feeding experience in the past with their child they, that they've had to tune into. So these parents are a little bit more cued into what's going on with their child's feeding. And they're not going to wait and see to see what happens, right? Because they've already kind of dealt with it. Because if your child, if your child is born, you know your mom and there's feeding issues and there's sleep issues, it's like you're not doing your job, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like the two things you need to do, <laughs> sleep and eat. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then what about, what do you think the relationship is between um, having a tongue tie and having um, feeding well, issues? And- yeah. Like, so a lot of American research is not really strong in that. We were seeing a lot of research come in from other countries um, that kind of correlates to. So various um, picky eating was tongue ties. So it's, it's hard to say because, you know, there's all these different scales to rate tongue ties in depending who you talk to. There's the front, there's the back, posterior, anterior ties. There's all the different ties in the mouth. So we do see a correlation between a lot of things. For example, we see a lot of kids pocketing food who can't lateralize their tongue, whose tongue might be restricted, right? Um, because they can't do that transverse movement. So the food will just kind of like either go up the roof of their palate or it'll go onto the cheeks. Or maybe it goes up because their tongue is, you know, restricted pulling down. Um, so they don't have the ability to like sweep the food back. So there is definitely a correlation between um, tongue ties and anatomical challenges of the mouth. We see that with kids who have cleft palates and with swallowing. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of avoidance of like the more difficult food that require more motor skills. Yeah. And with motor skills, I mean, I'm sure you have to be really aware of what a child can tolerate and maybe not give them like pastina, like little tiny, mm-hmm. you know, or um, what are your recommendations for kind of knowing when to give a certain food to a child? So a lot of parents like want to do this because they're nervous about calories. And there's a great study that came out last year by um, Delaney and from Nebraska. And she went into like the actual calories kids get certain months. Like for example, the average eight month old only gets 4% of nutrition through solids. Mm. So you have to kind of work in a lot of this to your thought process of like, I want to introduce my child to food, but at the same time, I want to make sure that their oral skills are developing too. So a lot of these like baby led weaning and all these programs like that are really just to help with oral movement of the tongue. So it may not be that the child's actually eating the food, but it's that their tongue is, you know, balancing the food in their mouth, moving it around, spitting it out, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So um, And managing like little pieces that are hard. Managing pieces, yeah. I can't really speak to like what is the right time for each child, but you know, we see a lot of cues, like, for example, the transverse movement of walking and crawling, that back and forth movement, back and forth, back and forth movement. You'll see that kind of translate with speech, right? So the kid is also going back and forth, back and forth. 
and their tongue is moving back and forth, back and forth. And so all of a sudden they're saying all these new sounds, like retracting their lips, like E and we, right? Mm-hmm. And so same with the feeding, they're moving their teeth back and forth and they have all these new movements. So maybe they're like, that's kind of like a skill for them, right? So their body is developing and their mouth is developing and they may be kind of getting to the point where like things that are a little bit more complicated, you know, it might be the right time to try those. But again, it's all case by case. And like you can say, if a child crawls, they should eat X food. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I always tell parents, better to play on the safe side. You know, if you feel nervous, stop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't have to do what's going on the internet. Kids will not get most of their calories at that point through solids. Great. That's great advice. I'm wondering if you can um, walk me and the listeners through a success story, maybe of one of your clients who had a very restrictive diet, but then through therapy was able to eat a larger variety of food. Yeah. I mean, we have so many stories. It's like sometimes we close our eyes and we're giving them this food because we're like, oh my God, are they going to eat it? <laughs> Wait, this be this size? <laughs> we all get so like worked up about it but, like on the outside we're like you're brave you're calm you're such a good eater like, you know? yeah. <laughs> but you know we've had so many great success stories um you know I just right before we started recording this podcast I just finished a feeding session with a little boy who was extremely restrictive on his diet he's growing now and it's so nice to see but I had a child last year who when he came to me was eating um he was undiagnosed autism, but then um, was later diagnosed four months later. So he was two at the time um, when I saw him and then, you know, got diagnosed at two, four months. Um, but at the time he was eating nachos, um, like plain nachos, like chips, sorry, chips, like nacho chips mm-hmm. and water um, and oat milk. Oh, so wow. that was all he was eating. So the first thing is I said to the parent, you need to get this kid on some sort of vitamin. And like, you need to figure out that with the nutritionist because he's not getting enough nutrients in his body, right? So from there, we worked on kind of incorporating food into his play routine on the floor. Um, we were rolling a plum back and forth. We were pressing on our face. We had this all over movements of food. Um, and we slowly but surely started with liquids with him. Um, mm-hmm. So we went from, you know, a white smoothie to a green smoothie to an orange, like totally, you know, he became more willing, more flexible he started to realize that he actually enjoyed the flavors he was just resistant to the visual input and the smells so we kind of worked on desensitization approach and it really helped him thank god because this kid was really on the point of like potentially getting on our feeding tube right so wow. now this child will i go to his house um every week he is eating a full plate of food broccoli hamburgers chicken anything you give him he'll at least try which is like totally the point of eating therapy i don't need them to 100 eat everything but the fact that he's willing to try and he doesn't have that rigidity anymore is like amazing to see oh that's great that's such a yeah. great story and i'm happy, yeah. so happy for him and his family Me too the family is so happy so why don't you recommend the wait and see approach i've seen you mention this on your instagram yeah Oh my gosh. So basically you go to your pediatrician, you're like, my kids stopped eating vegetables. My kids, and then the next point is my kids, it's okay. They'll grow out of it. And then they're not growing out of it. Right. So they're becoming more restrictive with their eating over time. So it's better in my opinion to try to seek out a professional, even if it's just an evaluation, um, to figure out what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and at least get a second eye on it. That's someone who understands feeding, like Pediatricians understand nutritional growth and development. They may not understand feeding development, right? So they may not understand all the cues that we have as speech therapists, occupational therapists, people who work with feeding disorders, um, psychologists. Um, and that's kind of the people you need to tune into for like when your instinct goes a little, 
you know, red flag, red flag, something doesn't feel 100% right. I'm at the birthday party. This kid is eating ice cream and cake. My kid won't even touch the cake. At that point, we think, okay, maybe the pediatrician said, okay, they're getting enough calories because they're eating macaroni and cheese for three meals a day, but something feels wrong. And that's when I think it's important. There's a great website from Feeding Matters. It was developed by a mom who has a child of um, extreme picky eating disorder. Um, and on that website, you can browse for speech therapists and occupational therapists in your area who are feeding specialists. Can you say that website one more time? Sure. Yeah. It's feedingmatters.org. Okay. Great. And then what other resources do you recommend for SLPs or parents who want to learn more about feeding therapy? Um, depending on how old your child is, you know, I could recommend a lot of different resources. Um, I think, you know, also your philosophy and like who you are as a person. So I've been trained in behavioral feeding. I've been trained in sensory feeding. I've been trained in motor feeding. I've been trained, you know, in all these different mm -hmm. therapies. Um, so I think when you're doing the research, you have to kind of figure out what your client's needs are the most. Are your kids, you know, coming into because they have poor motor skills and that's why they're not eating? Or are they coming into because they have a hard time with their sensory system and that's why they're not eating? So kind of understanding, you know, or they have a lot of, you're getting a lot of tongue ties, you're maybe getting a lot of dental referrals. So kind of understanding who your clients are and then kind of tailoring that to what kind of continuing education you want to do for yourself would probably really help you from a speech perspective, mm -hmm. from a parent's perspective. I would say that Feeding Matters website is extremely helpful for trying to understand um, what's going on to also help you feel like it's not just you, right? So that yeah. they've created an organization, they have a conference every year to help parents like you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for those resources. And then Rebecca, can you tell people where to find you and how they can get more information from you? And if they're in New York City, how they can find you for speech therapy or feeding therapy? Yeah come over our clinic is in on on 60th and park um we're speech in the city very googleable <laughs> <laughs> and um you can definitely reach out to me us on instagram we're speech in the city on instagram um but yeah we all really love our jobs and like i think that's really important as like therapists you know we don't really hire people who are like eh, about their job right so everyone here is super excited super motivated and like we spend all our, you know, time to really just help these families and help these kids because we see the results of feeding therapy are amazing, especially when it goes well. Oh, that's great. And then what about your Instagram account? Oh, mine is, you could look me up, Rebecca Taskin, but I think it's on um, SLP. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. You have provided so much great information um, and I really appreciate it. I'm glad. I hope it was helpful. And, you know, of course, if anyone needs anything, feel free to reach out. Thanks so much, Rebecca. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave a review and let your friends and colleagues know about the Early Education Matters podcast. You can connect with me on Instagram. You can find me at Kara Speech, C-A-R-A-S-P-E-E-C-H. From my link in my profile, you can find links to my children's books and a link to my course, helping your child communicate. Did you know that you can earn ASHA CEUs by listening to some great podcast episodes on slpconnect.com? Visit slpconnect.com and register for a yearly or monthly membership to get ASHA CEU submission and so much more. Use my code CARASPEECH, C-A-R-A-S-P-E-E-C-H for about 20% off your membership. Thank you so much for listening.